Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word, and let's read about that which we celebrate today, that resurrection. And let's start in verse number 1. We'll read forward from John chapter 20, verse number 1, and it reads like this. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. And as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher or master. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. Father, this morning we have opened your word and read it. We have fellowshiped together in one spirit because of one Lord and one Father. Today I ask you to take this word and bring it alive to our hearts, Father, and that you make very little of me. And very much of you, that you may be honored and glorified in this place. This we pray in the name of our risen Savior, your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. What an awesome celebration. Yet it didn't start that way at that tomb. I find it very interesting as you read the different accounts, as it fills in different pieces of the puzzle. The one thing that stands out to me the most of each of the descriptions of this 
resurrection, this visit to the tomb, is the disbelief among those who followed Jesus. What an amazing thought. To think that those that had spent so much time with him had heard him say what would come, had heard him mention the fact that he would one day leave them. Now they came to this tomb and they had no idea what to do with it. They had no idea what to do with this empty tomb. For you see, they depended on Jesus for life. And they depended on him physically to be there so that they could touch him and see him and hear him. Yet now they were lost because there was no Jesus. See, just three days earlier, you know the story. Jesus had been led through a hasty mock trial the nights before, had been accused of things that never happened, and had even had one official say, this man's not guilty. What would you have me do with him? Send him off to others. And one actually put it up as a vote to the ones gathered there and say, who would you have me turn loose, Jesus or Barabbas? All those present screamed Barabbas. They all screamed, put Jesus to death, is what they were saying. And they did just that. You've heard me say they beat him beyond recognition. There was no way to even know who this man was. They whipped him with the cat of nine tails, which was long leather strips embedded with glass and bone and metal objects. And they stretched him out across the whipping post. And they struck him across the back. And every time that thing would strike him in the back and they would pull it away, bits of flesh would come with it. He was literally shredded upon a whipping post. As if that wasn't enough, they humiliated him. They spit upon him. They slapped him and beat him. They mocked him, saying, so you're the king of the Jews. They made him carry his own cross member down the road, the Via Della Rosa. Carry his own cross member to his cross. And it tells us in the Bible that he was so weak from the beating that he fell. And so they just reached in the crowd and picked a man. It said, you carry it. And that cross was carried the rest of the way for him. They laid him down on this cross member in the upright and they nailed his hands and his feet to it. And they raised that cross and dropped it into the ground. Thinking that they had victory over this Jesus. They continued the mocking. They continued the cursing at him. They paraded by and saw this naked Jesus hanging on the cross. I imagine some of those that were gathered there had been part of that 5,000 where he had taken simple bread and fish and met their needs. I imagine some of them even may have been family members to those that Jesus had reached down to a dead body laying and said, Arise and walk. I imagine there were those that were there that had seen the crippled boy be healed, had seen the Man with no sight that now could see. I imagine there were those there that had followed the life of Jesus. And because Jesus hadn't met the need that they thought that they had that was most abundant, now they desired to kill him. You know, it's no different than us today. When something goes south in our life, we need Jesus. 
when he fixes the problem, we forget about Jesus. You know what we're saying when we forget about Jesus? We'll take Barabbas, the world, kill Jesus. We'll come back for him when we need him. And here gathered these folks at this cross to see a man hang, hang upon that cross for six long hours. To see the world go completely dark halfway through, to see the veil of the temple be torn in half, to feel the ground shake. Yet they still wanted to see this Jesus dead. Now we come three days later to the story I just read. Three days later. Why three days later? It was customary at that time, the reason Jesus was taken from the cross, that there would be nobody left on the cross during the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, as to the file of the Sabbath. So the body of Jesus was taken down before that by Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph volunteered his own tomb to place his body in, and they hastily, I imagine, wrapped this body wound it up in these linens, and they gently folded this cloth over his face. And the last hands to touch Jesus was Joseph. How interesting. The first man to touch Jesus was also a Joseph, a different Joseph, but Joseph nonetheless. So the last physical hands to place him in his burial place was Joseph. He placed him there. They laid him out on this carved slab inside of this cave, this tomb, and they rolled in front of it this big stone, kind of as a closure. It's no different than us today. We bring together a family that has lost a loved one, and, and a lot of times we roll the casket here to the front of the church. We come by and pay our last respects, and before the service starts, someone comes and closes the lid, and we talk about that person how wonderful they were the things that they had done and if they're saved how Christ had worked in their life and yet here's Jesus they closed the lid on his tomb and no one said a word not a word he was just placed in the tomb we generally take the casket across the street if they have a burial plot here and we place that casket in a grave and we cover it with dirt and we set a headstone on it we do that not for the person who died because that person is no longer there. It's just a body. We do that for the family and the friends as closure, as a way to, to bring to a close that moment in their life. And I imagine as they rolled that stone in front of that tomb, those disciples and Joseph and the ladies who had attended Jesus for years saw it as closure. They saw it as closure. Yet they knew it wasn't complete because it had been done so hastily that he hadn't had the proper burial. So that brings us to this third day. That brings us to Mary. In other Gospels, you'll see it says Mary and and other ladies went to the tomb. They went with one purpose. Their purpose was to give Jesus a proper burial. They actually would then go in and, and care for the body and prepare it the proper way so that it would... It would meet the customs of the day, the traditions of the day. So here goes Mary, blessed Mary, up this path to the tomb. And it tells us there in the very first verse that it was the first day of the week. It was the new Sabbath for us. It was that Sunday. 
It's the day after the Jews had celebrated their Sabbath on Saturday, and it was still dark, it tells us, which means she had gotten up early with this desire to take care of her Savior, to take care of this Jesus, to take care of this one that she loved so much. And she headed up this path, and you can almost see it. You can almost see her walking down this path in the dark, finding her way from memory maybe because she had been there and seen from a distance as Joseph had placed that body in the tomb. And as she crests the hill maybe and sees that tomb in a distance, she notices there's a problem. She notices there's something that shouldn't be there, or actually, I guess, should be there that's not. And it's the seal, this gigantic stone that would have been rolled in front of the tomb. This tomb had been guarded, as we talked about earlier, across the street by probably a whole group of soldiers. They were put there with one purpose. That purpose was to keep the disciples from coming and taking the body from the tomb so that they could spread the news that Jesus had done exactly as he said. Well, I find it interesting that those who didn't really believe in Jesus believed enough in his story that they didn't want it to happen. The Romans had more belief in what Jesus had said than his disciples because we don't find his disciples anywhere but in hiding before this moment. Mary crests that hill and sees that tomb. She notices that the stone has been rolled away. She makes haste to get up to this tomb to see what is happening she runs up, it tells us in verse 2, it says she ran and, and came to Simon Peter and the others, and she tells him this, somebody's stolen Jesus. Somebody's taken our Jesus. Speaks volumes to me about what they believed in the word of, that Jesus had given them just days prior when he had told them that I will be leaving you, but will return. When he said things like, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. When he made promises to them that one day you'll be without me, but I will come back. Yet Mary doesn't run back to the disciples and say, he is risen. She runs back and says, someone stole him. Someone stole my Jesus. Well, who is this Mary? Why is it significant to even know that she wouldn't believe, so to speak, in the resurrection of Jesus? Look with me at, let's look over at Luke 8. Luke 8. Let's get a picture of this Mary. Luke chapter 8 verse 1 tells us a little snippet about Mary, as well as some other ladies. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Luke. Now it came to pass afterward. Now, what is the afterward? This is after Jesus had, had given parables. He had raised the widow's uh, son at one point in time. He had talked about John and how John was, was the forerunner. Uh, Jesus had also criticized that generation that didn't believe. Jesus had been anointed by a woman who had anointed his feet, if you remember. Then he tells the parable of a couple of debtors who owed money. Talks about how the woman had caressed his feet, had not stopped kissing his feet. It talked about that anointing that she had given. And he had told this woman that her sins were forgiven. And then we fall right into this story that says, Now it came to pass afterward, after all this had happened, 
that he went through every city and village. So he was out on this journey. It says that he was preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. So he was out preaching about this kingdom of God. And it says, and the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And just to make sure you knew who they were, it says, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom seven who had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So who was this Mary Magdalene? We don't see the story specifically of Mary and Jesus with the removal of the seven demons, but we see it mentioned here as in other places. Apparently at some point, Jesus and Mary had crossed paths. At some point, they had seen each other. It may have been in her hometown, uh, which is where she gets her name, Mary of Magdalene. It may have been there because that town was pretty corrupt. That town had a lot of things going for it that made it look a lot like Sodom. (laughs) Here she was, and tradition says that she was a prostitute or a woman of ill repute, but the Bible tells us that she had seven demons in her. If you remember stories, you remember there's a story where it says that if a person has a demon cast out and doesn't fill that void in their life with something like Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, that seven demons would return and it would be worse for that person than it is now. Remember the story? Remember the story of the ones who Jesus saw as he got out of the boat that were up in the the caves, the catacombs, and they came running down, and he cast the demons out of them into the swine, and the swine were so confused that they ran and bailed off into the water, if you remember. For a person to be in field, to be taken over by demons, would cause chaos. If you remember the story, there was a little child who had a demon in him, and the demon's way of getting at the child and those around him was to make the child cast himself into the fire. To be filled with the demon was horrific. So she had great pains in her life until somewhere along the road she met this Jesus. What had Jesus done for her? He had taken those seven demons and cast them from her and made her normal again. Had made her a person that would be accepted in those around her. What had Jesus really done? He had loved her. And because of Jesus' love for her, now what was she doing, do we see in Luke? She was attending to his needs from that which she had gained, those monies, those treasures, whatever it may have been, her possessions, it says there. So she was following this Jesus around, this this man who had cast from her these demons, and she was attending to him. It gives us a glimpse of Mary. The one thing it doesn't tell us about Mary It's whether or not Mary knew that he was her Savior. See, Jesus was the fixer for the problem in her life, no doubt. As we turn to him quite often for the fix in our life. See, there's a difference between having the demons cast out and having Jesus come in. There's a world of difference between seeing Jesus as the one to fix your problems and seeing Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and your Master. There's a world of difference between your physical life being set right and your spiritual life being set right. The world today looks at the outside, not the inside, to see just how good we are. Outwardly, she looked normal. But when we came to the tomb, 
she didn't believe in the resurrection. She believed in Jesus, obviously, and loved him dearly. Loved him deeply, with all compassion. Yet she shows up at this tomb, and her response to the stone being rolled away when she ran back to those disciples was, Look, someone has taken away the Lord out of the tomb. I find it very interesting that John uses the word the Lord. She didn't say my Lord. She said the Lord. You know what happens every Sunday morning in churches like this all over the world? People show up to see a picture of the Lord, not my Lord. They show up thinking that just to be in his presence and attend to his needs and to receive those gifts that he gives them is enough. Their relationship with Jesus is purely based on what he can do for them in their time of need. That's why she responded, they've stolen the Lord. I find it interesting the response of those disciples when they heard that. They had been in hiding. They had been scared to death. They had been afraid that they were next. Yet they took off running to see what had happened. Found it interesting that Peter's apart. Do we remember Peter just a few nights before in the garden? What did he do in the garden? <laughs> he immediately jumped to Jesus' defense, didn't he? He decided he would whack off a man's ear because apparently his aim was really bad. He should have been inches lower and going sideways, not straight up and down, but... He attacked. He was always the one to open his mouth and insert his foot because anytime Jesus asked something, he said, I agree with you. I'm with you. 100%. He's always jumping in and saying, those may run, but not me. What was he doing while Jesus was drugged through the courts? <laughs> he was there. He was looking from a distance. And every time someone looked at him and said, aren't you one of his? What was his response? I don't know that man. I don't know that man. The third time, he cursed and said, I do not know that man. What happened when he said it the third time? The rooster crowed. Prophecy was fulfilled because Jesus had told him, surely when the rooster crows, before the rooster crows, you will three times deny me. Yet here's this Peter He's so scared that he's in hiding. He's so scared that after Gethsemane, he wouldn't even admit being in Jesus' presence. But at the very mention of the fact that his body was missing, he had to go. And off he went. Now, I find it interesting the way John writes this because he says, So they both ran. They both ran. And it says that there was a disciple, Peter, who went out, and the other disciple, which is code name for John, in case you didn't catch that. And it says that they both ran, and the other disciple, who's John, outran him, beat him to the tomb. It was a foot race to see who could get there first, and John outruns him. John runs up and looks inside the tomb. And sure enough, he sees that the body of Jesus is missing. What does Peter do when he shows up? It says that Peter runs headlong right past him, right through the door. Because he wanted to lay his eyes on the spot. He wanted to see where that body had been. He wanted to touch him. His desire was to be in his presence. And he runs headlong into this tomb. And 
He sees the same thing John saw from the doorway. That the linen clothes were all there in place, yet there was no body in them. The way the wording is there in the Greek, it doesn't mean that the linen, tombs, the linen clothes were picked up and folded nicely and put to the side. It means that those wound cloths that had been wound around him, which interestingly enough, was made out of the same material that he had first been swaddled in when he came to this earth. He was bundled much the same way for death as he was in the manger. And he was completely wrapped and laid out. And it says that when they stuck their head in, the terminology there, the way it's used in the Greek, they saw those clothes deflated. They were still laid in place with no body, except for that cloth that had been around his face. It specifically tells us it was folded up and placed to the side. They stuck their head in and they saw this picture. And what does it say they did there at the very end in, in verse 10? It says, Then the disciples went away again to their houses, their homes. They saw these missing clothes and they didn't know what to do. There was no Jesus. So they left and went home. Why? Because in verse 9 it says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then my favorite part of the entire passage is the next single word. It's the word but in verse 11. It could very simply be but God because this is where God shows up in the picture. It says, but Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. Why was she weeping? She's much like us in the fact that when someone we've been in the presence of, someone we love so much, no matter where they're going in eternity, when they leave this earth, our heart is broken. Here's Mary. She's, she's seen her Jesus down a cross. She's seen his body be placed in a tomb, and with all of her heart, she wanted to come and just love on that man one more time. Yet he was missing. There was no body. There was no way she could show her affection or love to him anymore. For he was missing. And it says that she stood there weeping. She must have gathered herself at some point and she stooped down and walked into the tomb. When she walks into the tomb, she sees those same clothes that are laying out. She sees that same, same headcloth folded up. But you'll notice John tells us she sees something else. It's very interesting what she sees here. It says there in verse 12, And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Anytime something miraculous happens in the life of Jesus, who do we see there? The angels. Remember, hanging on the cross, it was said that he could have called 10,000 angels to come take him off of that cross. They were there the whole time. They were even there with him in the tomb. When he left that tomb, two stayed behind. Other descriptions tell us there were even some sitting outside on the, on the stone. But they're set too, and I find it kind of interesting... Look at Exodus 25, I think it is. 
Yes, Exodus 25. I find it kind of interesting that it says this in John's passage because Exodus 25 tells us about this ark of the covenant, this mercy seat that would have been behind that big thick robe that as darkness fell on the earth and Jesus was separated from God as he hung upon the cross. It says that God took that curtain and he tore it from the top to the bottom to expose the Holy of Holies. Inside of the Holy of Holies would have been the place that on the Day of Atonement yearly, the high priest would have gone in and sprinkled the blood on the, the mercy seat, asking for the forgiveness of the sins of all of Israel. And it was this mercy seat that's described here in, in Exodus 25, verse 10. And it says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubic and a half its width, and a cubic and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, and the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And they shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. So he's going to put inside of this ark this testimony. The ark can't be touched by human hands, can only be carried by these poles. Now let's look and see what's so special in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Notice it didn't say it was going to be acacia wood covered in gold. It said it was going to be a mercy seat of pure gold. It's going to be two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. So it fit perfectly on top. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end. The other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherub shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with the wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, above which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. Why were there two angels sitting at either end of where Jesus had been laying? Because our new mercy seat is now Jesus. See, before the great high priest would go into that tabernacle and sprinkle right where it was describing those wings across that mercy seat. And God said, what? It is there that I will meet you. It is there that I will meet you. See, Jesus was laid out on this stone. And when he resurrected and left behind the clothes, two angels were left sitting on either end, much like those cherubs. No longer was there to be a mercy seat that needed sprinkling, for Jesus had sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. His blood had now become our atonement, not once a year, but every day of every year. So she saw these two angels. And these two angels asked her a question, Why do you weep? Why are you weeping? And she said, Because they have taken away 
my Lord. Do you notice a change? Do you notice? She had run and told the disciples they took the Lord. Now she goes in and sees with her own eyes. She sees the angels that she knows not who they are, but she somehow comprehends. I think she remembers those things that Jesus had said. And suddenly, it's her Lord. Suddenly she says, they've taken my Lord. My Lord's gone. And it says that right after she said that, she turned. (laughs) When she turned, she saw this man standing. And the man looked at her and said, Woman, why are you weeping? The same question that the angels had asked. But he asked one more. Who is it you're looking for? I think that has a lot to do with the fact that she had come to realize that the missing Jesus was her Lord. He's saying, let's reinforce this. Who is it exactly that you're looking for? And she says, thinking he's the gardener, Sir, somebody's carried him away. Maybe it's you, the gardener. Maybe you've carried him away. If it's you, just tell me where he's at. If you'll tell me where he's at, I'll go take care of him. And Jesus looks at her. In our English translation, it says that he looks at her and says, Mary. In the Arabic, he actually said, Miriam. It's important to understand that because she answers in Arabic whenever she says, Rabboni. Rabboni, most times, believe it or not, was used to speak of God or somebody who was godly, most often translated master. Here's Mary through her tears, through her pain, through her suffering, and she sees Jesus, doesn't even recognize him. There's been all kinds of theories about why. Maybe it's his glorified body. Maybe it's the fact that she had tears in her eyes. The important thing to understand is there stood Jesus in her presence, and she did not know who he was, much like the men on the road to Emmaus, much like the others that he visited. But when he spoke, when he said, Miriam, the light went off. She knew who he was. She knew exactly who he was. I find it kind of interesting because John 10, I think it is, John 10 tells us exactly why. Yes, John chapter 10, verse 1 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. See, the good shepherd had just showed up. The good shepherd had showed up and called his sheep by name. Her response was, Master. It doesn't tell us, but you can read between the lines. Apparently, she fell at his feet and grasped him, grabbed hold of him, clinged to him. Because the next word that Jesus says to her is, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. He says, Miriam, you got to let go. She's got him clutched because she's already lost him once. She's not going to lose him again. She knows he's alive, and she's going to do everything she can to stay with him. She's grasped so tightly around him that he says, Don't cling to me. 
You've got to let me go. He says, I have not yet gone to my father. I have not yet ascended to my father. But then he makes a statement that forever changes our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, our relationship is much like hers. Jesus, at some point, we have crossed his path, and our life is different because of it. For some, we've got a superficial Christianity where Jesus has saved us from some sin that we've committed, and he's kept us from having the penalty of that sin put upon our life, and we see him as our Savior from a situation, but maybe not our Savior for eternity. For some of us, we see him as a quick fix to a problem. There's many that see him as a quick fix to a problem. Jesus, in some parts of the Bible, says that we are his slave because he is our master. He even says in another part in the Bible that we go from being a slave to being his friend. That we're a friend of God. And that's because we move from him being our problem fixer to a relationship with him. Where we love him like Mary. Where we desire to be with him. Where we want to cling to him. Where we want to hold him close. Yet here, Jesus changes that entire relationship yet again. When he looks at her, in verse 17, towards the end, and he says, But go to my brethren. He doesn't call them his slave. He doesn't call them his servant. He doesn't even call them his friend. He says, You're now my brother. What Jesus did by rising from the grave is to place us into the family of God. We're no longer a servant. We're not just a casual friend. Those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and abide in His commandments and cling to Him and love Him with all their heart are now His brother. What's closer? A friend or a brother? A brother. He now says, go and tell them, my brethren, I'm ascending to my father, who is your father. I'm ascending to my God, who is your God. I ask you this morning, what is your relationship with Jesus? Jesus loved you with his life. Do you love him with your life? Do you so desire to be in his presence that nothing else in the world matters? Do you so desire to see him every day that when you're in his presence you cling to him as if there's nothing else in the world? Have you let Jesus be taken off that cross? Have you let him be pulled off the cross in your life where he died for your sins? And have you allowed him to be put in the tomb? And have you seen him rise from that tomb so that you're no longer just his friend? You're no longer just covered by the blood that flowed from the cross, but you're now family. You see, because to truly love Jesus with all your heart, with all of your heart, means you're family. How does that look in our life today? We all are born into a family. Some of us are fortunate to have brothers and sisters. 
Some of us are unfortunate to have brothers and sisters. This is according to how you look at it. We all have a mom and a dad. We all have those family members that we think so much of. And for most of us, we'd do anything in the world for our family, wouldn't we? We would do absolutely anything for our family. But the good news is, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you worship Him with all that you are, your mind, soul, and your body, that you're now part of His family. He's proven He'll do anything for you. Have you proven you'll do anything for Him? Have you surrendered your entire life to Him? It's not about this. It's not even about reading that word. It's not about doing good things. For all of those things can be done by a person that's headed to hell. You do understand the function of church, the function of reading the Bible, the function of doing the good things are done by those who are headed to a place called hell. What is the difference? It's the heart with which you do it. It's that heart of Mary. That heart that clings to Jesus. No matter where you go, Jesus, I'm right there. If it leads me on a path to death, so be it. Because to be absent from this body is to be in your presence forever. So my question to you this morning is, where do you stand with Jesus? When you look at that tomb and you see the stone rolled away, what's your first thought? Somebody stole the body? Or is your first thought when you look at that tomb and it's empty? That you turn around and go, I know he's somewhere. I know he's in this garden somewhere. And when I find him, I'm going to cling to him. I'm going to do whatever he asks, whenever he asks, wherever he asks. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.